This week on the Parlay in All Blue, we have Dr. Curtis Austin. He's an associate professor at Arizona State University, where he focuses on civil rights and black power movements. This episode advances the history of black empowerment from our previous episode with Taylor Branch, which focused on civil rights. This episode focuses on black power, the black power movement, and the vanguard of the revolution, which is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. In preparation for this episode, I used Dr. Austin's book, Up Against the Wall, as a starting point. I went back and reread books that I had previously uh, engaged with to get a different understanding or an updated understanding. Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton, Elaine Brown's A Taste of Power, and many essays and I looked at documentaries and so just been a lot of time in getting ready for for this one. What I found in all of that prep work and in this conversation with Dr. Austin is that the Black Panther Party was a forward-thinking, complex, underscore complex, say complex again, progressive and aggressive group of men and women who are often presented as a caricature and not with the thoughtfulness it takes to appreciate and respect their contributions and their challenges. Dr. Austin is a native of Yazoo City, Mississippi, so you know he's coming correct, and we always like to go home. Now, you can also find uh, Dr. Austin on a TED Talk and talking about the Black Panther Party, so you can search that on the internet. It's out there. You'll enjoy that as well. But stick with the parlay in our blue first. We appreciate you listening, and please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps others to find us, and it helps us in building an audience. And with that, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Curtis Austin, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm great. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Yeah, no, Happy New Year to you. And hey, listen, we thank you for your time when we first connected I believe you were coming towards end of semester and you had some writing deadlines and all of the stuff that uh, you you sounded like you were in full scale academic stress mode. Uh, I I hope that you are uh, you're you're done with that or just probably getting ready to start right back into it, I would assume. Oh, yeah, we started this week. Okay, Uh, Monday school school started on Monday, so it's it's back. It's another deep dive. I've got um, three new PhD students. I've got two new courses I've never taught. I've got a number of additional deadlines I didn't have the last time we talked, two of which are tomorrow. So Uh uh, when we're done, you know, I've got my work cut out for me. Probably going to be a long night. But I'm really grateful for all of that. And and I'm grateful for the invitation uh, to your show to share uh, my thoughts and opinions on whatever questions you have for me. Okay. Well, well, you know, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, I, I want to say that this episode, we talk about the Black Panther Party and the episode that we had last week was with uh, Taylor Branch, who oh. had written, yeah, the, 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 the um, Dr. King 
and civil rights trilogy. And so I thought that these two episodes, in my mind, go together because they represent sort of our organized uh, struggle for uh, liberation. Anyway, so let's 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 jump into it. What was the Black Panther Party? You know, the Black Panther Party was an organization that sought to bring about significant change in the Black community. And it sought to do that, to achieve that particular goal by engaging with the people in the communities it wanted to serve. And so members of the Black Panther Party would go out and say, hey, you know, what do you see around your community that you don't like? What do you see that you'd like to change? What would make you feel more comfortable as a resident of this community? And and they did that for months and months and months. And that is actually what led to their now famous uh, 10-point platform and program. Uh, This notion that they wanted self-determination. They wanted, you know, adequate schools, good housing, full employment, and so on and so forth. And so it was an organization that really sought to serve the needs of the community. And I think there were several things that said it against other Black Power era organizations. And uh, one of those several things would be its insistence on defending the Black community. When the Black Panther Party was started in Oakland in October 1966, in the 10 months prior to that, there were, depending on, you know, what newspaper you refer to or what secondary source you read, 10 homicides, police homicides, uh, where black people, unarmed black people were killed. And we, of course, today in 2023, and certainly in the previous years, have seen that kind of action, but we don't see one a month, right? We see one every blue moon and people go to Ferguson or Baltimore or Minneapolis and they burn stuff up. But imagine that happening once a month for 10 months in a row. So the Black Panther Party was standing up to say enough. This is enough. We're we're going to patrol the police in our community to make sure that they don't do this. And so it was a really radical organization that insisted on change, insisted on freedom, and insisted on their right, their human right, to self-defense. So you 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 packed a lot in there, and that's a, a perfect opening because I will tell you as somebody who spends a lot of time in sort of black history, I'm not an academic, but I'm somebody who spends a lot of time in black history and in civil rights and black power movements and the black arts and what have you. I think I have, even in my mind, prior to sort of preparing for this episode, and I used uh, your book up against the wall, and I went to, you know, Taste of Power with Elaine Brown and Revolutionary Suicide, and I looked at documentaries, and I read COINTELPRO documents, and and just many... Listen, so I went, went all in, and what I discovered is a very dynamic organization. So what I had taken for, I think everybody has the image of the self-defense, but I saw a lot of other things in there, sort of political ideology, the survival programs and many things. And we'll, we'll get to that. But one thing I want to sort of start with is you said it's 1966 when they founded October of 1966 
This is after the Civil Rights Movement, after the Civil Rights Act. It's after the Voting Rights Act. This is after some pretty significant sort of legislative victories. And even after, way after the Montgomery bus boycotts and after Brown versus Board of Education. Why was there, you mentioned the, the, the police shootings. Why hadn't the country just sort of just said, hey, you know, we had a civil rights act now. Let's, let's all get along. What, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Uh, let's see what, what did happen. So I think we have to come to an agreement that what we see in the founding documents uh, of this nation, they're very beautiful, lofty uh, words, some wonderful ideas, excellent ideas, if you ask me. However, they're just words, and they're just words on paper. When you look at the history of Black people in the United States, practically nothing in those documents refer to Black people, and practically nothing in those documents have been enforced as it regards the rights of Black people. So that when you get something like a Voting Rights Act of 1965, right, unless somebody enforces that, they're just words. And the federal government didn't jump to enforce that. You see something like a Civil Rights Act of 1964. Well, the first Civil Rights Act was passed in 1866. If you read the wording 100 years prior, it's the same thing. So if you don't, if you don't enforce the laws on the books, then nothing changes. And going back to your, your question, the police violence is designed to maintain the status quo. And the status quo is designed to create profits, right? And when we think about the fact that we live in a capitalist country, profits are far more important and far more valuable than people. And it just so happens that in this country, the people who generated the bedrock of the profits were Africans, Black people who we often refer to as slaves. And many of us think that ended in 1865, and it just changed faces, all right? It did not. And so part of what we see going on in the 1960s is more of the same. Like people say, we've made all these changes. We have these laws. You know, you read the New York Times, you look at CBS Nightly News. Oh, yeah, you know, Civil Rights Act, the Selman to Montgomery March changed all of these things. But at the end of the day, profit is king. And you can't have profit with the kind of equality Black people were demanding, right? At least you can't have the kinds of profits that they had become used to. And so um, the reason people aren't standing up saying, hey, you know, we have all these laws, you know, people have all these rights. Why don't we see these changes? It's because the profit motive remains the same, right? If you keep labor costs low, you can maintain your billionaire and today, I mean, then billionaire today, it's trillionaire status. And if that means, you know, keeping people out of school, Uh, If that means killing people, then that's kind of what it is. Most of us, and I imagine most of your listeners, uh, whether they belong to a church or not, but most of us were raised with Christian ideals, you know, treat people like you want to be treated, you know, don't hurt other people. This is not the case with the people who run the United States, right? They will pay lip service to those ideals, but the fact of the matter is, they don't care about those ideals. They care about profits. 
Yeah, you know, there's a there's a couple of things, and so you know, one of the the be- beautiful things, the thing for me personally about doing the show is I've run up on just a number of things, but I was talking to a gentleman uh, who's who's going to be on the show about the German Coast uh, slave rebellion, African slaves rebelling in Louisiana, and in some of the research I noticed in Thomas Jefferson's his last sort of grievance against King George was you are inciting domestic insurrections here. You know what I mean? And then sort of, I looked at the constitutional convention, you know, that South Carolina and Virginia is like, Hey, we need to make sure that you all will raise an army to put together down these domestic insurrections. So black people, you're talking about that labor, that need for labor and that controlled labor and the violence associated with it has been since day one, and it's been a concern since day one. It's like when you said the, the, the Constitution, I thought of Gil Scott as the Constitution, a noble piece of paper. You know, in other words, like it's got everything in there, and but it's not always that way. And I don't know, you know, as we're approaching Dr. King's the, the holiday, the celebrating his holiday, I don't know if it's the Riverside sermon or somewhere in there, he talks about the Civil Rights Act that was just passed at that point, not being as strong as the 1866 one. But but with that, to come back to the Panthers, because these are some very dynamic people, who were who the founders? And this may be sort of basic for you, but just to get, just to set the stage of not just sort of who they were, but what was shaping sort of their, their mindset? Well, uh, the founders of the Black Panther Party are two college students, uh, in fact, community college students. Uh, One is Huey Percy Newton. The other one is Bobby George Seal. And they they met in college, and they met during a time in the early 1960s when there was quite a lot of political fervor, not only in, in this country, but in the world, right? They actually met at a protest around the Cuba situation. And so their perspective was internationalist from the start. They also met during a time when people were clamoring for more ethnic studies types classes. And so for them, that meant black studies. And many of us uh, believe that the first black studies program was at San Francisco State in 1968. But actually, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton connected with other students and faculty at Merritt College in Oakland and started the first black studies program there. Uh, across the bay from from San Francisco. And so they were responding to things that were happening in their communities, in the state of California, in the United States, and globally. I mean, they understood what was going on with these newly independent African nations that were sprouting up all over Africa, from Sudan and Chad to Ghana and, and all of the rest. And this gave them a particular type of pride and incentive to press for their own rights to press for the things they felt like they needed to not only survive, but to thrive. And they joined, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton joined a number of different organizations trying to uh, create what they eventually created in the Black Panther Party. But it turned out many of the leaders of the organization were paying lip service to the things that they, they claimed to believe in and won't and weren't really serious about it. And so they spent a couple of years joining, being kicked out, leaving organizations before they decided, you know what, we're going to do our own thing. And so in terms of answering your questions, like what were they responding to? 
they were responding to the widespread violence that they would see on the nightly news unfolding in the South. You mentioned Montgomery earlier, but a guy named Mac Charles Parker was killed in 1959 in, in Mississippi, lynched, along with a, a lynch mob led by the local sheriff of, of Pearl River County. They, they're watching this on the news. They see this newly elected president, John F. Kennedy, pay lip service to all the wonderful things that he is planning to do. But by the time, you know, they start the Black Panther Party, Kennedy is is dead and gone. He didn't do any of those things, nor right. did his successor. So, so they're responding to some very specific incidents in their midst, but also globally. So I want to sort of bifurcate or trifurcate, or maybe it's a quad because it's a complex sort of thing. And, and I don't want to necessarily go through the 10 point program point by point, but I want to take it in maybe four spaces, the sort of political and sort of economic aspects of it, because you mentioned, you know, responding to capitalism some things in there that I would call it that I know they call survival programs or what we may call now social programs, things about rights, more rights, particularly about courts and trial by jury and what have you. And then the sort of self-defense piece. So sort of go in that order. First, just just help, because I think this is important. And my my oldest son always emphasizes to me that we miss the Panthers as sort of their political ideology. What did they believe in, in terms of what, how would we frame them in terms of their sort of political or social structure? The, the organization or, or their belief? <laughs> their belief organization or what, were they capitalists? Were they, were they Democrats, big D, like, you know, a part of the Democratic Party? What what did they, where would they have aligned themselves? You know, they were not anti-capitalists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they thought capitalism had some really serious issues. They were okay. not looking to change capitalism. They were not looking to turn the United States into a socialist or a Marxist utopia. If you, you know, listen to their speeches, read some of their writings, they certainly leaned in that direction. But Mm -hmm. uh, when we think about the 10-point platform and program, like, they're saying, hey, give us full employment. So that says to the people, we don't have that big of a problem with the system. The system is just not working for us. So so they're certainly not Mm anti-capitalist. And they're, they're saying, we won't Decent housing, right? Where is decent housing going to come from? We, we know housing is not free. Those, those of us who are living today, you know, housing is just off the chain. They were experiencing very similar things at the time the Black Panther Party uh, was founded in terms of inflation and lack of access to these things. They were saying, count us in, give us a share. So uh, a lot of times uh, you can... Let's take the the court thing that that you mentioned. We want a jury of our peers. They didn't say we want to burn the courthouse down. You know, we want to change the whole judicial structure of the country. They're saying these all-white juries are bound to convict us. But your documents say that we are entitled to a jury of our peers. And so in many ways, the Black Panther Party, minus one or two things, was very reformist, very reformist. And I would not call them Democrats. But they certainly aren't Republican. 
right? Uh, they would be <laughs> yeah, uh, much, so. much more closely related, connected yeah. to the ideals of the Democratic Party. They wanted the same thing that, that Martin Luther King wanted. They were just insisting on getting it by any means necessary. Martin Luther King believed that working with the other side, being peaceful, being nonviolent, taking this gradualist approach was the best thing for everybody. Mm-hmm. They thought that working with the other side was okay if they were going to play fair, but they were not interested in a gradualist approach. They felt like black people had waited for centuries to get what they deserved and tomorrow was already too late. So let's do it today. So these are not people who are trying to overthrow the system, right? If you read their documents, you see something in there about it, but If you continue to read their documents, they're quoting the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. They're saying, hey, you wrote this thing, make it happen for us. So very reformist from its start. And if you look at the way the country behaves on a local, national, and international level, they really believe, the leaders of the United States really believed in self-defense. And they're saying... We don't have a problem with that. We believe in it too, right? So when you're saying the Russians are trying to take over everything over there and you want to send troops over there to keep the Russians from doing it, hey, no problem with that. But when the police come into our communities and do the same thing, we want to be able to exercise the right to do what it is you're doing, which is defending yourself. So I don't think um, that's a very radical stance. It, it seems reasonable to me. Yeah. No, thank you for that. that uh, thank you for that clarification. A big part of their activities, and it seems that uh, the FBI thought this was pretty dangerous, were some of their survival programs, uh, like free breakfasts and buses to prisons or what have you. Were They they seem very much to almost in some some cases – serve as what we call now NGOs, but very locally, or you look like social service agency. What was what was the impetus behind those programs and why was that important for them? Well, I mean, they looked around and saw that these were serious problems in the Black community. If you take the uh, free breakfast program, which is probably the most popular one, just as an example, what we see, it, I, I mentioned earlier that Seal and Newton were students, college students. Well, they ran into some other students from Berkeley who had been in this class, participated in this project, and learned that students, any students, white, black, Asian, any student performs far worse if they don't have adequate nutrition and adequate diet. And this was exceptional in the black community. They, they noticed that black people, black students, black children really were not doing uh, their best because they were hungry. And so they decided to solve this problem. Let's feed them. And they did, right? So that solves that particular problem. But you mentioned COINTELPRO and the FBI not liking that. The FBI was not so upset about them actually feeding the children. But what happens is you come into these breakfast programs and then you get a history lesson. You get a political science lesson. You get an economics lesson. You get an anthropology lesson. So they're talking to these young people and, by the way, their parents, their guardians, their uncles, their aunts, their neighbors, the people who drop them off at these programs about these ideas that they're not going to come across in school. 
that was the problem, that they're inciting the community to think on their own terms, rather than just ingesting what the school is going to give them. And so if you think back to the beginning of the country, one of the first laws on the books of this nation was it was a felony for African people to know how to read. They kept you reading. Uh, you can get a part of your body chopped off. And in, in very extreme cases, you're going to be killed. You're going to be executed. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the powers that be know that reading is a revolutionary activity. Learning is a revolutionary activity. All of us, your listeners included, have heard the phrase knowledge is power, right? Yeah. What the FBI was concerned about was those children, those parents, those community people gaining knowledge. Because once you have that knowledge, you're a lot less likely to go for the things that you've been going for all these times. And so it wasn't the actual breakfast program. It wasn't the actual free health clinic the free shoes program, the busing to prisons program. It was the discussions that happened on these buses in these clinics at these breakfasts that the FBI and by extension, the, the White House and Congress did not like, because that is going to have a very good chance of changing the status quo. It's okay for these few thousand members of the Black Panther Party to believe that, but we can't have the entire community believe in that. So this is a little bit outside of sort of what we what we're here to talk about. But when you mentioned that, what do you think do the sort of anti-CRT laws, the rash of anti-CRT laws are are sort of that those extreme punishments for for uh, becoming literate? Are they a sort of um, akin or or antecedents to to that? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's the same thing over and over. You know, you, you think about it. I, I ask your listeners to think about this notion that you're, what you're telling us is your history is so bad, you don't want anybody talking about it. Right. Now, I believe in, in the creator, but the fact of the matter is even God can't change history. You know, right. once it happens, it's happened. You, you can't go back and change it. Yep. And so they're saying, let's not discuss lynching. Let's not discuss why there was a black power era. You know, let's not discuss the tragedy of the centuries of slavery. Like that is very problematic. And when you, you know, think about the fact that practically nobody is actually doing this, nobody in grade school is teaching critical race theory. That, that's something you learn after graduate school. Like right. I, I, I went through 10 years of school five of which was a master's and a, and a PhD program. I didn't even learn that. I knew it existed, but you have to be in a very highly calibrated law school to get this kind of information. And then they're saying it's illegal to do that. Well, they're trying to get in front of this problem. And the problem being educating the larger populace. Like, we don't want you telling the truth because then the status quo changes. And once the status quo changes, we can't have the profits that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Listen, hey, uh, I will amen to all of that. And I would underscore that even just just sort of really studying and being educated really makes you uh, a much better advocate for your own citizenship. One of the things that I looked at with the Panthers, particularly in Oakland, of lobbying to or petitioning or demanding just the basics of like a red light, 
right, and going to the state capitol. And and listen, all of those are activities that I feel whenever election season comes around, we say vote, 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 but we don't talk about, you know, that that's just step one. There's a lot of other things to being a good citizen or to getting what you want. And I think they were excellent at it. Absolutely. Yes, I would have to agree on that. I mean, when you think about the reason they're in the state capitol in May of 1967, it's because their constitutional rights are being infringed upon. You know, everybody likes to quote today. And when I, I say everybody, what I'm really talking about is people on the right. You know, their Second Amendment right to bear arms. And here come the Black Panther Party exercising that right. And all of a sudden, the state of California says, that's illegal. You know, you can't do that. If you look at the history of what goes on in Sacramento, the Panthers are not the first people to show up at the Capitol with guns. You know, gun rights groups are in Sacramento all the time, completely armed. Their arms, uh, their guns are loaded, but they happen to be white people. You know, asking for for more rights. So this is, is uh, May of 1967 was the first time the California Assembly saw people show up in the viewing gallery to listen to a debate about guns. It wasn't the second, third, fourth or fifth time. It had been going on for decades. It just so happens that when black people say we want to exercise this right, it has the potential. And I know I'm repeating myself. It has a, the potential of changing the status quo. They do not want the status quo changed. Uh, if people uh, take the time to look into that incident, what they'll find is nobody was charged for that. Why? Because it's not illegal. They, they did nothing wrong except turn up in their black skins. Many of them wound up going to jail, but they went to jail after being arrested at a gas station miles away from the state house in Sacramento and one person in one of those cars that came up in that caravan had forgotten to unload his weapon. Well, there's an obscure California state law that said at the time, a game and fish law, really, that said mm-hmm. at the time you can't have a loaded weapon and a moving vehicle. And that's what they were charged with. They weren't charged with anything that went on at the Capitol. Yeah. So so let's stick with that for a minute, because that seems to be, you know, sort of where you know, the popular mindset sticks with the Panthers is the guns and the berets and just sort of the 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 pushing forward. But from your book and just other things, I don't know if black people being armed and wanting to protect themselves in their communities a new idea. I, I you know, and you mentioned Robert Williams and the Deacons of Defense and others. I mean, where did we get to the whole thing of, of, of if every it's, it can only be nonviolence and you have to, you know, you're, you're not going to be aggressive. How did how did we help me sort through all of that? Because it, it when I read your work and then looked at it holistically, black people having guns is not a new thing. Definitely not a new thing. It's an aberration. In fact, the. Um this notion that we're going to achieve our freedom through nonviolent means. The 1960s civil rights movement is far different from any of the movements starting after 1619 up to that point. Black people had always, for, for their rights, and they had always used arms to fight for those rights. I think the difference uh, at this particular time was mass media, right? 
The difference is is the mass media that does not exist uh, before World War II, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are obviously TVs, um, radio shows, and newspapers. But after World War II, we get this proliferation of media. And the folks who came down to see what was happening in the South noticed that people were arming themselves. There were all kinds of groups that were armed. But they didn't write about that. They wrote about the nonviolent part, and they wrote about the nonviolent part because they didn't want copycats. They didn't want people in New York and Chicago and Detroit and Boston doing the same things people are doing in Birmingham and Jackson and Houston and these other southern locales, right? Everybody knew it was going on. You, you even had this group called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, nonviolent, right there in the name. But if you yeah. think about the fact that after five years of activity in the South, there are like four members of SNCC who were killed. That's, that's one of you. You have to ask yourself, you're down in the South doing all of that, and only one person like per year is dying? Well, the fact that those numbers are so low is because they're defending themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to read that in the New York Times. Walter Cronkite is not going to tell you that on the CBS Nightly News, because if he does and if the New York Times does that, you're going to have people in Milwaukee getting ideas about how they can prosecute their own freedom. And so this is actually going on during the civil rights movement. It's just that the mass media is masking it. And quite frankly, organizations like the Congress of Racial Equality, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, are going along with it because it gets them more recruits and it gets them more money. Like you have these very powerful organizations that are giving lots of money for these voting rights programs, these, these voting rights initiatives. You have lots of people in Minnesota, lots of people in Michigan, who are supporting these people down south because they believe, oh, those poor people, look how they're just wonderfully suffering down there. You know, you're getting hit upside the head and not fighting back. You're getting ketchup and mustard pouring all over you just because you want a a hamburger at a lunch counter. Yeah, that makes for good copy. That's going to sell you a lot of newspapers. It's not going to sell you a lot of newspapers if they know that the African Blood Brotherhood is operating in Birmingham. That's going to create a fear and a fear in the country that people aren't really ready to deal with at that particular point. And so it's really not the case that the movement is entirely nonviolent. I'll direct your readers to a book by Charlie Cobb, who is one of the architects of Freedom Summer. He wrote a book called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. And he writes about the history of armed struggle in the South actually in the country at large, but he focuses on the South. And you will be shocked about how many Southern Black people, people in Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, and Texas, have nothing to do with nonviolence. It's it's the people, white and Black, who decided to drop out of school, come to Mississippi, come to Georgia, come to Alabama, and serve these organizations whose organizations said we're nonviolent. But the people that they're trying to help I mean, at at the end of the day, it's an agricultural area of the country. And black people are primarily poor people. So a lot of times, the only way you can eat is to go out and hunt for your food and fish for your food. I mean, you go to the grocery store and buy your sugar and your flour, but, you know, you're going to have to go out and find the meat you want. And so practically everybody had guns. Men and women knew how to use guns. And so it wasn't a far leap to say that, you know, if you 
keep me from trying to exercise my right to vote or from exercising my right to go to this school, which my tax dollars are actually paying for, then I'm going to defend myself. And that's what black people were doing. It was a mass media that created this notion that the movement was all nonviolent. Yeah, we did a show and it was about Natchez and uh, the deacons of defense paid, played a significant role in Natchez and sort of their civil rights movement and talked about Bogalusa. But there's a name, and if you could just spend a little bit of time on it, Robert Williams in uh, Monroe, North Carolina. Who was he and what, what makes it, him significant? Well, Robert Williams is a veteran. He actually uh, participated in both World War II and Korea. And uh, he comes back home after his time overseas and joins the NAACP. But in Monroe, North Carolina, the Klan is so hard on black people that most of the people in the NAACP kind of give it up because the NAACP, uh, believe it or not, gets labeled as a terrorist organization. And um, because they now have this label of being terrorist, most folks are being terrorized. Uh, and like I said, they're being terrorized by the Klan. But during this particular period, the Klan is also the sheriff and the, uh, the police department. So they have very strong backing. And it turns out that only a few people are willing to stay in the NAACP. And Robert Williams is, is one of them. And in fact, it's a funny thing that happens because uh, many of the people who leave who vote him in as president of the Monroe, uh, North Carolina NAACP, vote him in as president, they immediately resign. It's like, here, you can have it. You know, I am uh-huh. out of here. So what Williams does is actually recruit some of his veteran buddies to join the NAACP. And they go out and do the things that the NAACP is known for doing. Very mainstream, very nonviolent. And when they get pushed back, they insist on defending uh, themselves. And when they defend themselves, then you don't hear from the claim. You don't hear from the police. You don't hear from the sheriff's department because at the end of the day, these um, organizations are, are, are made of people who are, for all intents and purposes, cowards. They're fine as long as the people they're harassing, the people they're molesting, uh, are not willing to stand up and fight back. They're fine as long as the people they're doing these heinous things to are unarmed. But Robert Williams, again, who, who's fought for democracy abroad, for people he'd never met before, is saying, well, we fought for them. We ought to have democracy in a country that claims itself to be a democracy. So the NAACP actually didn't like this. And they suspended Robert Williams for his insistence on armed self-defense. And Robert Williams didn't care that what they wound up doing was to uh, elect his wife as President Mabel Williams. And Robert Williams ran the organization through his wife, although Mabel Williams actually didn't need a lot of help. She was uh, a dyed-in-the-wool activist in her own rights. And they made changes in Monroe, North Carolina, that uh, remain the order of the day today. When you talk about voting rights and desegregation and um, getting the kind of schooling you want, you look at Monroe, North Carolina, Black people are doing fine on this because... Robert Williams insisted on that. Now, what winds up happening is there are a group of freedom riders who come to town and many people in the city, including people in the sheriffs and police departments, harass them to the point to where there are riots downtown. Williams and his cohort go downtown, try 
to rescue these. In fact, they do rescue these people. One of whom is James Foreman, who is the, the leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And, you know, a white person, actually a white couple, is caught up in the fear of all of this that's going on. And they wind up trying to get out of that, making the wrong turn, going into the black community after making this wrong turn. And, you know, black people are up in arms. They're, they're like, you know, the white people are running them up. They're, they're trying to, you know, take these freedom riders and, and kill them. You know, they're, they're trying to desegregate these lunch counters, the swimming pool, register people to vote, doing all the things that freedom riders do when they come to town. And uh, black people are mad that they've, they've been harassed. And so when they come, the, this white couple is lost and comes into the black community, people start threatening them. And it's Robert Williams who says to these people, hey, we're not having that. Our problem is against oppression, you know, not white people. The oppressors are actually downtown. It's not these two people in this car. But the FBI jumps on that situation, starts harassing Robert Williams by calling his phone nonstop saying, we're going to kill you. He runs away because he believes him. And after he runs away, they say, oh, he kidnapped this white couple. And so now he's a federal fugitive. And mm-hmm. as a federal fugitive, he believes he's going to be shot on sight. So he links up with some people who actually are friends of Malcolm X and a woman in New York City named Mae Mallory, who connects him with some folks who can get him out of the country. And he winds up in Cuba. Castro gives him political asylum. And Robert Williams, while in Cuba, creates this newspaper called The Crusader, this radio show called Radio Free Dixie. And he talks about the history of black people and what black people need to do to change that history going forward. And part of his recommendation is we need to arm ourselves. We need to fight back. When you look around this globe and you see the people who are free, none of them got free through nonviolence. Not a single nation, not a single group of people got their freedom by petitioning, by marching, by going hat in hand to their oppressors saying, please give me some freedom. They fought and that's why they're free. And Robert Williams plays the blues. He plays jazz. And he goes through African history, early African-American history, and they try to jam the signal and keep you from listening to this show. But people in L.A. and San Francisco and New York and Jackson, Mississippi, if they can get that antenna right, can hear that Radio Free Dixie every Sunday night. You have millions of people tuning into this show. And so he stays abroad in Cuba for a few years and winds up ticking off Castro and then goes to China, where he continues to do the same thing. And in 1969, he's invited back to the country by the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency because the United States wants to know what's going on in China. And the only American who can tell them that is Robert Williams. Uh And so he comes back and founds the first, you know, basically a Chinese institute at the University of Michigan in 1969 by being debriefed by the CIA. He remains a radical till his death, I think, in 1996 or something like that. But that's who Robert Williams is. He is a a veteran who insisted on his right to life and Black people's right to armed self-defense. Yeah. So so thank you for that. That is a name that I swear that I had not heard until um, prepared for this episode and reading your, your book. You mentioned his wife, Mabel, and other women. What about women and the role of women in the uh, Black Panther Party? 
you know, it varies. The Black Panther Party had more than 40 chapters throughout the United States. So women in the Black Panther Party and their role would vary from chapter to chapter. And the treatment of women would vary from chapter to chapter. So, for example, you would have men who, who joined the party who thought that women were there to type and clean and have babies for the revolution, like very patriarchal, misogynistic, sexist notions of what women's roles were. And so in a lot of chapters, uh, women suffered for their willingness to serve the people, their willingness to serve this organization. But I would say, uh, based on my research, in most chapters, what you see is women having leadership positions and, quite frankly, being the most sophisticated leaders of the organization. You know, you mentioned Elaine Brown earlier. She becomes the leader of the party in the 1970s. Uh, There are people like Kathleen Cleaver and Cheryl Foster and Safiya Bukhari Erica Huggins, um, and many, there, there are hundreds of women in, in the organization who are responsible for the breakfast programs we've been talking about, who without them, there would be no free health clinics. There are lots of women who actually trained people how to handle weapons, how to assemble, dis- disassemble, and um, shoot weapons accurately. So their role is going to vary depending on what chapter we're talking about. Uh, so, so women, for example, in Oakland might have had a really difficult time. Women in New York City, not so much, right? You're going to have women in the New Orleans chapter of, of the Black Panther Party who are going to be leaders of that organization and who are not going to take any job. But if you go up to somewhere like the New Haven chapter, that's probably not going to be the case. But if you stay in the Northeast, women are in charge of the Boston chapter of the Black Panther Party with very few uh, exceptions of of its tenure. So it, it varies. There's not one statement we can make about women in the party except to say that they participated at the same rate as men and uh, I argue they are the ones who are going to be the more sophisticated thinkers in the party. Men, of course, get the credit because if you think about it, the people who are writing these newspaper articles, the reporters who are coming out from CBS, ABC and NBC, they're men themselves. And so they're looking for the men to talk to. They're not looking for women because they, too, are patriarchal. They, too, are misogynist and, and sexist. And they don't believe women have very much to say about this thing. And so it feels like the Huey Newtons and Eldridge Cleavers and Bob, Bobby Seals of the world are the engines of this organization. But the fact of the matter is that's not the case. It's women and men who are making these changes. And I would say after Elaine Brown takes charge of the organization in 19, so after 1972, significant number of the people in leadership positions are women, mm-hmm. right? So their roles vary over time. There are women whose sole job it is to find out who is causing all these havoc, uh, all this havoc in the party and dealing with that. So it's kind of hard to say there's one thing that happened with women. But what we do know is that without women, the party would not be what it was. I mean, when you think about the work that Kathleen Cleaver does as communication secretary of the organization, the, the way people know the Black Panther Party is through the Free Huey movement. It's Kathleen Cleaver that who is the architect of the Free Huey movement, right? Not Eldridge Cleaver, not Bobby Seale, not any other male. It's it's Kathleen Cleaver. 
you think about the party in New York, you've heard of Matulu Shakur, right? Some people who uh, do reading on the party have heard of David Brothers, but actually about 60% of the people in uh, the Brooklyn, the Harlem, and the Queens chapter are women, and those people are running the party, and that's why they're not dealing with this misogyny. They're not having it at all. And you have folks, just as a very quick example to wrap this up, who come in from Oakland after the leadership of the New York chapter goes to jail, the New York 21, and so they come in to fill this vacuum. Well, they bring their ideas about women with them from California, and they start to take advantage of women. Well, the women in New York don't think that's okay. And when you read party history really closely, those men wind up being run out of town on a rail by women who say, that's not what we do here in New York. We actually believe everything that the 10-point platform and program is saying, and we actually believe in all the rules of the party. And one of those rules is we don't mistreat each other. And so they had to teach the leadership how not to do that. So it's a mixed bag. But at the end of the day, the party would not be the organization we know about without the contributions of uh, all these women I mentioned and the thousands I did not mention. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I heard uh, on on some interview where Elaine Brown said, listen, the chauvinism of the time was in the party. We didn't. Unfortunately, we didn't get these brothers from revolutionary heaven. So we had to deal with a lot of different things. So. That's uh, I appreciate that. Listen, the 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 government and the FBI specifically has a strong reaction to the party. And you mentioned COINTELPRO. You know, there's all of our sort of things run up against resistance. But what were some of the unique things that happened that would from the FBI to the Panthers that really cause things to to disintegrate? Well, I, I appreciate that question. It, too, is very nuanced, and uh, the answer is very nuanced and, and very complicated. But I, I do think um, we can we can clear things up, even though it's, it's a complicated uh, answer to that question. And what we see the counterintelligence program doing is, is trying to put down radical ideas. And the Panthers have very radical ideas. What uh, we have to, what, what, what your listeners want to keep in mind is the Black Panther Party's, uh, oper- Party is, is operating during a time when there's political fervor everywhere. It's not just in this country. It's all over the globe. And it's not just Black people. Puerto Ricans are rising up. Chicano people are rising up. Native peoples are rising up. And guess what? Middle-class and poor white people are rising up. This is all happening doing something that we've come to call the Black is Beautiful period. Uh, a lot of us call it the Black is Beautiful period or the Black Power moment. And what we see during the Black Power moment is Black organizations are so proud now to be, because before this, they weren't Black, right? They were Negro. And before that, they were colored. And before that, they were the big N-word, Right. So they've come all this way, and now they are really proud to be black. Well, part of the what, part of what comes out of that is black people are so proud to be black, they don't want to have that much to do with white folks, right? 
they they know their history now, and they like, how dare you do? We didn't know you did that to us. We thought y'all were some good Christians, and you know, you, you just kind of made a mistake, and you could be brought into the fold of humanity. Well, they find out that it's not a mistake. It's very calculated what you've done to us. And so they don't want to have anything to do with white people. Well, the Black Panther Party do not subscribe to that notion. What the Black Panther did was to say, we're going to fight racism uh, with solidarity. So you have this very, very small organization. Uh, People like myself, other scholars, have not been able to find more than 5,000 members across the history of the Black Panther Party. Now, there are almost 30 million Black people in the United States. I'm not a mathematician, but if you divide five by 35,000 by, by 30 million, you know, that's not very much. Very tiny, tiny percentage of black people join this organization. And the reason there's such a tiny percentage is because the Black Panther Party was okay with working with white organizations. And so what we see COINTELPRO doing is trying to destroy the party because it's made the party has made it okay to bring the students for a democratic society into the fold, right? To bring an organization like the White Panther Party into the fold, uh, to work with poor white people on the south and west side of Chicago, to work with poor white people in Portland. So you have black people like, oh, no, they ain't working with those white folks. We, we're not down here. You know, Black's beautiful, my big afro. We're not dealing with that. The Panthers are saying we're going to deal with that because that's the only way to the solution. And folks are running around this Panther banner. So to keep folks from doing that, COINTELPRO goes in and says, hey, you know, to this woman, your husband is sleeping, you know, with this other guy. So they break up people's relationship. They, you know, spy on organizations, read people's mails, put microphones in in their offices and use the information from those surreptitious activities to tell lies. They put these lies in the newspapers and they discredit the organization. A lot of times when these kind of low level actions don't work, they get into these extreme levels, extreme levels being, you know, fabricating some crime that you didn't commit and sending you to jail for this crime for years. And well, I said jail, what I really meant was prison. And sometimes when that doesn't work, COINTELPRO will authorize an assassination. Many of us, many of your listeners have heard the phrase or at least understand the notion, you know, if you cut off the head, the body will die. So in January of 1969, they felt like the the, the FBI, the White House felt like Al Prentice Bunchy Carter, who founded the Los Angeles chapter of the organization, was getting out of hand. And so they created a situation where he would be assassinated on the campus of UCLA. At the end of that year in 1969, December 4th, to be exact, they thought that Fred Hampton had brought brought together way too many people in Chicago. It wasn't just serving black kids breakfast on the south side of Chicago they were bothered about. They were bothered about Fred Hampton having access to a range of other organizations, including the Blackstone Rangers, who also had 5,000 members who were very heavily armed and who are now politicized. And guess what? Not afraid of the Chicago police. So they can't have that. So they decided they were going to murder Fred Hampton. And that's what they did December 4th, 1969. And so creating all of this chaos, all of this imbalance in the party, and again, sending people to prison and killing folks 
really led to the disintegration of the organization because at the end of the day, as human beings, what we want to do is be left alone and to live. Well, the FBI was not going to leave the people alone and it was not going to allow people to live. And so you have people quitting in droves and those who don't quit wind up going to jail in droves. Those who don't wind up going to jail wind up having some very bad things happening to them, including you know, they infiltrate people into the party and, and have folks take drugs and get them addicted to drugs, right? Yeah. And so it was a range of activities the counterintelligence program used that led to the disintegration of the organization. Yeah. You know, so when you talked about Fred Hampton there and his bringing Puerto Ricans together and bringing the Blacks, I'm from Chicago, and bringing the Blackstone Rangers, it bringing, making them political and having poor whites there. What I thought about to go back to kind of where we started about where the money comes from is Bacon's Rebellion right at the beginning of the country where you have indentured servants, white indentured servants and black African slaves rebelling together and really then that creating sort of the anti-black and making black sort of the permanent underclass and the slave class. And I, when I saw, saw, see, and read anything about Fred Hampton, I see someone who, as all of these people are, listen, Dr. King, Elaine Brown, many of the these were dynamic people, but what I saw with Fred Hampton is somebody who could uniquely reach across many constituencies and bring them together. And, and, uh, and clearly he was a major threat. And in the interest of time, even even if you've seen the movie and even if you've done anything else, I would tell people to go back and really just look at or read about Fred Hampton and then Chicago, not just because of, because of what a dynamic leader he was, but also the which all Americans should be upset about this because what happened to him was a, a straight up hit, a coordinated hit. It's not an accident. It's not, it's, it's, it's documented. It's a documented assassination coordinated between the FBI and the Chicago police department. I mean, that's, that's not even up for dispute. So anyway, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So real quick, as we sort of come to a, a close here, what's the legacy of the black Panther party? You know, I think its its legacy is myriad. It, it leaves us a legacy of struggle, I think, first and foremost, that we can learn from. One of the things that, that Black people really need to keep in mind is that it is going to be well not impossible for us to get the freedom that we think we deserve without working with other people. And the Black Panther Party is an excellent organization to study on how you achieve that particular goal. Another legacy of the party is study, right? One of the rules of the party is that you had to read two hours every day. Now, I teach on a college campus, and I guarantee you a lot of my students are not doing that. So, so basically, if you read two hours every day, you're going to wind up with better than a college education. And you're not just reading black history. You're reading European history. You're reading world history, Asian history. You're reading about politics. You're reading about economics. You're reading about all of those things that make us better human beings. Now, so I think the legacy of study that the Black Panther Party left us is something that we cannot sleep on, that we cannot 
forget. I also think it's very important for us to think about this legacy of armed struggle, right? There is absolutely nothing wrong with the person saying, I have a right to live. You don't need the Constitution to tell you that. You don't need the Declaration of Independence to tell you that. Everybody who is born into this world has a right to be here. And no one has a right to take that life away from you. This is not to say you need to arm up and go around indiscriminately uh, shooting at people you think are oppressing you. Because at, at the end of the day, it's not the police oppressing you, right? So if you do that, you're shooting at the wrong people. The police are workers just like me and you. Uh, you know, they go to work, they get a paycheck, they, they hope to come home at the end of the day. And so I think that legacy of armed struggle is important because a lot of us, quite frankly, really because of our uh, Christian sympathies believe that God would not like it, Jesus would not like it if we defended ourselves. I submit that a very close reading of the Bible, a very close reading of Jesus' word, puts the lie to that notion. If you read exactly what hey, Jesus said, I'll say read the book of Joshua or read the book of Judges and, and, and listen. It's not a whole. It, it's, it's not a whole lot of sit downs in those two books. It's a <laughs> lot. Of, yeah, it's yeah. a whole lot of uh, picking up. You know, they didn't have guns before they picked. Yeah, up. he says to disciples to sell everything you have and take the money you make after, of, of what you sold and buy souls. Right. There were no M16s and nine millimeters during his time, but there were swords because Jesus knew that there were going to be, be people who try to stand in your way of freedom. And so I think that legacy of armed struggle is extremely, is extremely important, especially because we as a people are such good Christians. And I think we ought to remain good Christians, but I think we ought to read exactly what he said rather than taking for granted that, that the preacher is right. Because the preacher is telling us, I, I was, I'll qualify that and say my preacher told me something very different, right? Not, not sure what the preachers in Atlanta and other places are, are telling folks, but Jesus was not a, a pushover, and he did not believe people should have the right to do whatever it is they wanted to do to you. So, so I think there's a lot to the Black Panther Party legacy, and the one thing I'll, I'll end on is to say, just try it. They, they left that legacy. If you see something wrong, do something about it, right? The Panthers saw yeah. that black people were having problems with health care. And so they went around asking white doctors, white medical students to help them. And they created these clinics all over the country. The Panthers saw that people were hungry in their communities. They, wanted, they just went to the grocery store where everybody was going all the time and said, can you give us some eggs? You know, yeah. can you give us some milk? Can you give us some bacon? And feeding the community. And those students' grades changed almost overnight. So they left this legacy of, we think about the Nike motto, just do it, right? If you see something wrong, they go through the airports, they say, say something. You see something, say something. The Panthers said the same thing. You see something wrong, do something about it. If it doesn't work, try something else. So, so they left this legacy of activism that doesn't require a college degree, doesn't require a single penny, doesn't require any money to be effective. And I, and I think we need to pay attention to the actions they took, learn from those actions, and particularly from the mistakes that they made, you know, and build off of that. 
Hey, listen, George Washington was all for armed struggle. Like, so we 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 know that <laughs> we know that the country was uh was was founded that way. There are a couple of things that I want to particularly emphasize uh, in your summary, which I thought was excellent on the on the Panthers legacy. I always tell people there's not a documentary that can replace study nor a podcast, certainly that can replace study. This is a portal into many things. I I, I don't know if it was Erica Huggins or Elaine Brown as saw saying, you know, a brother came in and said, hey, I want to join the party and this, that and other. And they gave him a bunch of books. And he said, I thought you were going to arm me. And one of them says, you are armed. Go study. Fred Hampton really talking about having a revolution without educated people is no revolution at all. It just allows for those people to be set up. So that study part is really important. The other thing that we really emphasize here is just get involved with something in an organization, institutions can beat institutions or can at least begin to approach institutions. Individuals can't. And I cannot get past how effective certainly there in Oakland or certainly understanding how the local government there in California and Oakland work. We talk about the president and sort of big offices but they understood that the seat of power was, you know, at the city council or at the state house or what have you. So I, I really appreciate that. What what made you want to, to study the Panthers and black power? You know, it's, that's a very, very personal question. Uh, and the answer is, is very personal. So, so I'm not coming from a, an academic place at all. I grew up black as, as you're, listeners and uh, lookers can see, in Mississippi. And growing up Black in the, in the Mississippi Delta, as a child, uh, when I looked around my environment, I saw Black men and women being terrified of white people. You know, And when I say terrified, I mean everything would be fine until one white person showed up. And they would just act differently. They would laugh at things that were not funny. There would be this kind of shuffling, this Yasa boss kind of attitude. And nobody had mentioned to me the history of Black people, so I didn't know why they were acting like that, right? I just knew they were afraid. And it it totally confused me because I grew up in a family and in a community where fighting was really common, right? And you see these white people come around. I'm, you know, as a 7-year-old, 9-year-old, 13-year-old, I'm thinking— why are you acting like that? We can take him. I mean, we take each other all the time. We can defend ourselves against that, and we wouldn't. So I started to believe that Black people were weak, that we were wusses. And that led me to hating myself, hating the color of my skin, the, the shape of my lips. Uh, at the time, I, I had hair, uh, hating my, my nappy head, right? Yeah. The last thing I wanted to be was Black. Yeah. Right, because we were a weak, wuss race who wouldn't stand up for ourselves. And mm-hmm. I hated that about my community, and I hated that about myself, because I wasn't doing anything about it either. Right? And so to get to the answer to your question in, in the interest of time is, I take this notion to college with me and wind up in a class 
where the professor is talking about African history and specifically about the civil rights movement and specifically about what happened in my own, you know, hometown of Yazoo City in Yazoo County, where the Black Power movement kind of gets its wing. Stokely Carmichael made that speech the night before June 66 in Greenwood, but he actually came to Yazoo City and explained what Black Power meant yes. and worked with a lot of people who were my coaches, you know, who were my teachers, who were my neighbors. And I was like, nobody told me. What, what did, why didn't anybody tell me about this stuff? And the professor wound up talking about the Black Panther Party and folks leaving my own home county, going, hooking up with the Dickens of Defense, going to places like California, hooking up with the Panthers. And I was just living. I'm like, why in the world would nobody not say this to me? I was, I was mad at black people. I was mad at my mama, my coaches, my daddy, my teacher, white folks for sure. Once I calmed down, I thought, you know, my contribution to the people can be to share this story with it. So, so people don't have to grow up like me. So I'm going to research this organization and share it as far and wide as possible. Because had I known that, I wouldn't have grown up feeling inferior. That's why I studied the Black Panther Party, because it gave me a pride starting at the age of 18 that is still burning today. And that knowledge of who we are, of what we're capable of, and, and the contributions we've made, not just to this country, but to the world, has fueled me and uh, the work I've done for the last 30 years. That, that's why I studied the Black Panther Party. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And so for our, our audience, I, I will tell you this. I've had roommates, you know, when I was at Jackson State from Yazoo City and I've been to Yazoo City. Don't go to Yazoo City and not be ready to knock up. I'm not saying you're going to have to knock up, but I'm just saying it might jump off. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I just want you all to know, you know, you might think, okay, I'm going to go down here to Mississippi. Don't get caught sleeping in, in Yazoo. So I really appreciate that. I would tell other people this, and this is, you know, I just, I love to do this show. One of the major, one of the first major sort of consolidations of racial political activity and then sort of having to fight back is there in Clinton, Mississippi, in Yazoo County during Reconstruction, a major sort of political activity and massacre and all of that. Um, black people, I, I hate, there's a T-shirt or a, a meme that came out a while ago. It says, Dear Ancestors, I, uh, dear, dear racism, I am not my man ancestors, these hands. I'm like, you don't know black people. You don't know Jeremy Coast. You don't know Denmark DC. You don't know uh, the brothers in Houston in 1919. You don't know Ida B. Wells saying that, hey, I got my pistol. I may not get them all, but one of them's going with me. You just don't know black people if you are, are saying that. You mentioned Mississippi, and I always, uh, because Mississippi is my adopted home state, Alabama is the state of my origin, which was my parents are from, but I'm from Chicago. So I, I like to rope in all of the blackness that I can wherever I am. But what makes Mississippi beautiful to people who are from the outside and may not know it? What, what makes it a beautiful place? I, I think Mississippi, um, as you mentioned, has a legacy of struggle that people sleep on. You know, there are people 
like um, your own ancestors. And I have a hundred cousins in Chicago, you know, okay. uh, yeah. there are people who joined that great migration and left and went to Detroit, New York and Cleveland and Chicago. Uh, but the people who stayed didn't stay because they were afraid to go. They right. stayed because they thought they deserved a right to life where they That's were. Right. And so there's a strength in that state that is, I feel, you know, personally feel unrivaled. I'm sure people in Texas and Georgia and South Carolina feel the same about their own states. But in Mississippi, where you see the level of oppression being so extreme, you see the level of thinking about how to deal with that oppression being extreme as well. And so when you read the history of Mississippi and see the contributions Mississippians have made to the black freedom struggle, I think you should be all right. Given what they had to deal with, you, you mentioned the Clinton thing in 1874, 1875. White people were running around killing hundreds of people. They come to Yazoo County right there in Satasha, and it doesn't work because black people stand up for themselves. And they do the same thing in LaFleur County and Yazoo County and Forest County. And you, you keep naming those counties and you read that history, not the New York Times and, and not what a lot of civil rights historians say about those places, but the real history of that state. And you'll find a very resilient people. Fannie Lou Hamer is no joke. Yes, she's poor. Yes, she's a woman. But just because you beat her in a Winona jail doesn't mean she's going to quit. Right. She fought until her last day and she trained people until her last day. And she worked with folks, black, white, rich and poor and say, if you want your freedom, you've got to stay. Nobody's going to give it to you. You've got to go out and get it. And so I think the importance of Mississippi to the black freedom struggle is the legacy it left that shows you if you build it, they will come. If you fight, you will win. I think that's why Mississippi is so beautiful. No, I I love that. What does it mean to live well? I think what it means to live well is to be true to oneself. All of us who don't have a mental disability know what needs to be done. Most of us are afraid to talk about it. But all of us know in our heart of hearts, in our mind of minds, what needs to be done. And I'm not saying what needs to be done is you need to go kill a bunch of people and be free. That that is not what needs to be done, right? Right. What needs to be done is we need to find out who we are, why we're here, and how to improve our circumstances. All of that requires is deep thinking and study. And living well means to think deeply about your situation, about your environment, improve your knowledge through study on that, and then act on that. I don't think it's very complicated at all. Certainly, you need to work out. You know, you need to walk. Certainly, you need to eat well. You only have one body. You need to treat that body with kindness and love. Certainly, you need to do those things. That's going to help you live well. But as far as living goes, if you don't do what you know you need to be doing. And you can't tell me you don't know because I had the same problem pretending I didn't know for a long time. And I'm not special, right? Nor is anybody else. If you don't do what you know, you're not living well. And so I feel like living well is acting on your own convictions. And all of us have a conscience that tells us what is right. And I say living well means acting on what we know is right. 
Yeah, no, thank you for that. And and listen, uh, one of the uh, notes that I made during, you know, sort of my prep work for this, this episode, I saw so many things. I saw Huey Newton talking about we wanted to bring direct action. We wanted to cause conflict. I saw people talking about black, fire, black power. I saw people talking about it. We want it now. And, and listen, I have no criticism. But boy, when I hear the phrase Black Lives Matter, like we matter versus black power, I think we've taken a couple of steps back from where we were. And, and, and shout out, listen, get in where you fit in. Black Black Lives Matter, the Urban League, NAACP, whatever it is you need to do, get in where you fit in. But I think we've taken a, a few steps. You know, we downed it down just a, a little bit. Um, anyway, while we let's close out with Mississippi and if I were coming from, you know, another galaxy and I land in Mississippi and I say, I want to, I want to know what the music in your state, what represents the best music in your state? And I, I'll give you, because you've been so gracious, I normally give people a number three, four or five, but I'll, I'll let you just go for it. What is, what's the canon of Mississippi musical artists? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. It's it's everything you think of when you think of American music, right? Mississippi, what we see is jazz comes out of the Mississippi Delta. A lot of the history books will tell you it's coming out of New Orleans. Ooh, I was uh, going to say, all of my New Orleans guests are, are good. It, it, and if they're listening to this, boy, they're going to, ooh, we keep going. Okay. Yeah. I'm, so I'm, so I'm, I'm with you. Have, you have jazz that's developed in the Mississippi Delta. You have yep. gospel that's developed in the Mississippi Delta. You have yes. country that's developed in the Mississippi Delta. Of course, it goes without saying. You have blues that's developed in the Mississippi Delta. Every kind of American music that you can think of comes out of the state of Mississippi. And it comes out of that state because of the experience that we see in the state of Mississippi. Not that that's not going on in Tennessee. Not that yeah. that's not going on in Arkansas or in Alabama. But the kind of oppression that we see people having to deal with produces this response. And so when you see an Eric Clapton playing the, the blues, you wonder, what's he got to be sad about? Like, wh what is that about? You know, uh, when, when you see these other j jazz artists trying to play bebop, you wonder what it is they're trying to say to the people, because this was a secret way of talking to people. They yeah. didn't want folks to know what they were saying. And so that's what that music is, is all about. I mean, obviously, gospel is an homage to uh, Black people's care for the love of life. Not just their care for Christianity, but their care for the love of life and their resilience through a higher power. So they have to have that because at one point in time, it was against the law not only to have a gun, but to even to have a stick. So now you got some music that's going to sustain you. And that comes from your African culture, right? And so that's why that music grows the way it does. It's a response to the kind of oppression. So all kinds of music. In fact, yeah. most kinds of music comes out of the state of Mississippi. And it comes out of that state because of the very unique experience that Black people had there. 
Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, you know, for everyone, and we, listen, I, I know I love Aretha Franklin, but there's no Aretha Franklin without C.L. Franklin, who's from Sunflower County, Mississippi. So, uh, right. And, and, and Eric Clapton doesn't play the guitar like that unless he's, you know, studying B.B. Uh, King and, and Muddy Waters and others. So we will close on that. Brother Austin, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And, uh, you know, as far as what you were talking about in terms of living well, I hope that people who are listening to this episode are inspired to go not only learn and and take in more knowledge, but to do more as well. So I appreciate you and thank you for joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoy being here conversing with you and sharing uh, my two cents. I appreciate it. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.